Tonight is November 10th. It is Wednesday night. We are beginning the second chapter of John. And uh, this title will be called Ordinary and Extraordinary. Uh, as you turn into the second chapter of John, we just completed four previous messages. and So that I don't put you to sleep, I won't go back through those. But I do want to... Yeah, we had like four yawns simultaneously there. <laughs> Try not to take that personally tonight. We started off with the book of John revealing the Father or making the Father known because that was Jesus' uh, mission. He came to make the Father understandable to us. Then we moved on from there to the topics of the messianic expectation. All right, Jesus showed up in a time period, but what were the Jewish people looking for? What was the expectation of the culture around Him? Then we heard John the Baptist's announcement that was, Behold the Lamb of God. So we covered that. What did that mean? And what did it mean to describe Jesus as a Lamb? And how did that fit in with their expectation and Jesus' mission? Then we moved on from Jesus, the Lamb of God, to Jesus, Bethel. Jesus said in the latter part of the first chapter that uh, the disciples would see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on Him. It was quite a bold statement. He was equating himself to the house of God. He was equating, equating himself to a gateway to heaven. He was literally proclaiming himself to be God there. And it was all in a place that they were familiar with and they understood the wording. So that takes us into the second chapter. And I want you to remember something as we talk about first chapter, second chapter, these verses. There's no such thing in the Bible. This is something that we've put on them. If you were reading this, you would have read it as a letter. There was no verse 1, verse 2, and there certainly was no chapter or headings. So you would read this as one fluid thought. You don't segment it in the way that our book is segmented. Now I'm thankful that it's segmented. That was done for the purpose of clarity so that you would know what in John I was talking about if I referred to a specific statement. But it can hinder us in our interpretation. So we've moved on from Jesus Bethel, this uh, proclamation where they call him a king and he basically describes himself as the answer of the Jewish people. I am your way to heaven. I am your way to relate to the Father. I am your covenant in the land. I am the seed that had been promised. I am the very house of God. That's what he taught and we move on from there to John 2, verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and His disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to Him, They have no more wine. Before we go much further with this, most things in the Bible are not filler, and you know that. When the Bible says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana. We say Cana. They say Cana. Uh, anyway, they spell it with a K on their signs there. But on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. What is the third day? Third day since what? what? It's funny. We sometimes place such weight on scholarly work, right? If somebody's got initials after their name to us, that must mean they know what they're talking about. Well, I've worked now around doctors and lawyers, both, and I found out that is just not true of the most educated people in the world. I tell you that because I have one of the finest Bible study software programs that the world's ever known. I mean, I'm thrilled to death to have it. It's a blessing. But if you take about 15 of the commentaries and you read about what they say about the third day, they all disagree. And they all have very fine-sounding arguments. But I'm convinced that among many ter interpretations, and that's always an argument, well, that's your interpretation, well, that's yours, somebody's right. You know, there is a right one. This was supposed to mean something. On the third day a wedding took place. I'll tell you. Some said it was three days from the previous event. But that would beg the question, well, why didn't he say three days later? Wouldn't that be more natural? Some say that uh, on the third day a wedding took place that because Jewish weddings were sometimes seven and eight days long, usually at least seven, that it was the third day of a wedding. But if that were the case, why would it not say in the third day of a wedding? And both lay out their points and they, they make an argument. And the reason I believe these scholars have missed it and God has given it to such lowly and humble people as here 
is because they fail to look at the Hebraic roots. We have a tendency to examine everything as Greeks would. We look at it totally for logic. We look at it in light of our culture. In our culture, to say the third day means nothing. It really doesn't mean anything. It means what comes after two. But to a Jew who had spent his life studying the Torah, the, 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 the whole part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, what is the third day? It's the third day of creation. We start with one day, we go to the second day, then the third day, and there were seven, and on the seventh, they, he rested. The whole idea of a Sabbath, Sabbath has nothing to do with a Saturday. It has nothing to do with a Sunday, which is what some Christians try to interpret the Sabbath is. Sabbath was the seventh. They referred to days by the number of days. And it was in a seven-day repeating cycle. Now, the first day of the Jewish week is a Sunday. We recording? The first day of the Jewish week is a Sunday. So what would the third day be? Tuesday. Tuesday. And where were they at? A wedding at Cana. Do you know that today, and you, if those of you that are skeptical about this, you can go to thejewishweek.com. I mean, just literally spell that out with no spaces. Thejewishweek.com. And you'll see it today advertised about Israel. I found this out when I went to Israel. The Jews marry on Tuesday. I said, well, why on earth would they marry on Tuesday? And not all Jews, religious Jews, traditional Jews. And he said, well, why would they marry on Tuesday? And said, this is foreign to us. Tuesday's no different than any other day of the week. Why would we do that? Because Jews had a love for the Word of God. And despite all the things that Gentile Christians portray about Jews being Christ killers and all of these horrible, immoral things, everything that we have, we owe to the Jewish nation. And when the Bible in Genesis 1, and you can turn there, says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and we go through that. You read the first day. You read the second day and watch what is different about the third day. This just gives you a hint into the Jewish mindset and how meticulous they are with the Word. This meticulousness has been a beautiful benefit and a snare all at the same time. Jesus is later going to say, you search the Scriptures and yet refuse to come to Me and have life. Remember, and I'm going to repeat this every time we do this, the purpose of the book of John is that it was written that you might believe Jesus was the Christ. And in believing that He was the Christ, you might come to Him and have life. The problem was not that they were not searching the Scriptures. They were. And we'll see a detail on the third day of creation that caused them to do all of their weddings on the third day. And it's going to seem insignificant to you. But if you had grown up reading this and recounting these stories over and over and over, and you had this memorized the same way without thought that you can drive down the road and know what the speed limit is, or be at a stop sign and know who goes next. If this was that integral in your life, it would make more sense. And watch this. On the third day, this is verse 9, starts the third day of creation. Genesis 1, verse 9. And God said, Let the water under the sky gather to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and gathered the waters, and called them seas. And God saw that it was good. you see that? God said it was good. Now, verse 11, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that it bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. There are seven days that He mentions here. And on the first one, he says it's good. On the second one, he says it's good. On the third day, he says it's good twice. On the fourth one, he says it's good. On the fifth one, he says it's good. On the sixth one, he says it's very good. And on the seventh one, he rests. This is the only day of the week, and I kid you not, the Jews so cling to this that they do their weddings on this day of the week because they consider it doubly blessed by God. Because in the Scripture, it says that God blessed this day twice, says that He said it was good twice, they want to start their marriages off in the blessing of God and on the right foot, and so they do them on the days of the week where it is supposed to be double blessed. Now that looks almost superstitious to us, doesn't it? But it is rooted in the Word. 
Not that God said to do it on that day, but it is a noble and good desire. Everything about their culture reflected something about God. So that if a child said, Daddy, I noticed that we always do our weddings on the third day. Why do we do that? Then that would give the daddy an opportunity to teach the son about the creation. Everything that they did in their culture, because their culture was designed by God, was designed for that purpose. So when we read in John, it was the third day and he leaves no explanation for that. It's because it was understood by all of the people. It's not until we later make the Jewish church some Gentile creation that it doesn't make sense. A Jew knew what the third day was. They always referred to their days that way. You can see when, they resur- when the resurrection occurs, they speak of it like that. But in any case, go back to John. I didn't mean to get way off on that. I just, but now you know that Jews are married on Tuesday, huh? Somebody misunderstood this, by the way. And uh, there's a whole book about why, and I get this, this is hilarious. Now, they're probably much smarter than me who wrote this book, but this is just one little nugget I have. They wrote a whole book about why this wedding had to take place on a Wednesday. Do you know where their mistake was? (laughs) They reckon the first day of the week is Monday because that's what it is in America. (laughs) Is that insane? Okay, so go back to John. He said, well, what on earth does that make a difference? It makes a difference in this sense. The roots of our faith are Hebraic. And the sooner we understand that, and the sooner that we begin to apply that and begin to think in those terms, the more rich and full the Scripture becomes, and the less you get into weird, paganistic error. Every statement that comes out of the book of John that is twisted by that popish Roman Catholic machine is because it is taken out of its Jewish context and it's not understood in the light of the book. So this has been my cry for, from the time that I first heard it, is the Scripture alone. I don't want man's interpretation. I want the Scripture's interpretation. And the best way to get it is in its original context. You begin to study the events around it, the verses before it and after it, and Scripture will always bear light on other Scripture. Nothing's an island. It doesn't stand by itself. That just gives you a little insight into how I look at the Word. Not that you care, but I thought... I needed to tell you. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Why Cana in Galilee? Anybody have a guess? There's two Canas. He's being specific. Now, if you were writing this book and it were a fable, okay, you're making this up after the fact, you would leave things intentionally vague so that facts couldn't be verified. You're going to find out that John goes out of the way. I mean, the gospel period goes out of the way to point out who was there, names of people, names of places, and was written in a time period where it could be verified for the purpose of it being verified. So when you run into the higher criticism that that we run into today, and people telling you that the Bible is not true and all of those kind of things, these are good things to know because you don't ever hear that on, on TV when they're criticizing the Word. You don't ever hear that stuff. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, if Jesus and his disciples had also been invited, who else had been invited? The mother. The mother's there, Jesus is there, and at least some of the disciples. John hadn't recorded that all of them had been called yet. So I don't know whether this is a group of four or five, or whether all of them have been called and it's a flashback. I'm not sure. But the disciples are there, they've been invited. Jesus is there, he's been invited and the mom is there and she's been invited. So they didn't crash a wedding. You know, they, there's been every crazy thing said about why they ran out of wine at this wedding that you can imagine. You know, has anybody ever been to a wedding that they weren't invited to? Okay, well that was kind of a funny practice that some people, you know, crashing a party or crashing a wedding. Some of the commentators say that the reason they ran out of wine was because more people showed up than were invited. Not so. Guys, that's not it at all. That is such a carnal way to look at this. But in any case, here we go. They're all invited to a wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Here's the setting. They're all at a wedding. They've been invited. It's the third day of the week that the wedding started, but we don't know how far into this seven or eight day wedding they are. I mean, so I'm not telling you this event's occurring on a Tuesday. The wedding started on a Tuesday. Now we're here 
And at some point in this wedding, they've run out of wine. And Mary looks at Jesus and says, they're out of wine. She didn't ask Him to do anything. She didn't say, hey, Jesus, you want to whip up some wine? Like He had been doing this at home for her every evening, you know. <laughs> you know? That, that's not it at all. But when she does say they're out of wine, there is the inference that she expects Him to do something. And how does Jesus respond? Yes, ma'am, I'll do exactly what you say because you're the queen of heaven and I work for you. No, not as some would have you believe, huh? He says, dear woman, that is, the fact that he calls her a woman and not mom is not a term of disrespect, but it is a formal way for him to make a point here. Our relationship at this point, mom, is that you are a dear woman to me, not somebody who is in authority over me. Now, that wouldn't make a hill of beans difference if there were not so many people that were trying to pervert and twist that situation. But he refers to her, dear woman, why do you involve me? Or better yet, why are you trying to involve me? Because she obviously can't involve him. She didn't, she didn't do that. That's, that's kind of left unsaid but in, intended there. He said, why do you involve me? And his response was, my time has not yet come. What do you mean his time hasn't come? What's he talking about, his time? Number one, what was it she expected him to do? She didn't say. And number two, what is this, my time hasn't come? He wasn't wearing a wristwatch, was he? You know, some commentators say about this, and it's a natural conclusion, that because he goes ahead and does a miracle, that while he was talking to her, it wasn't time to do the miracle, but then later it was time to do the miracle. No, that's... That's trying to manipulate the Scripture to make it mean something. We don't have to do that. You don't have to defend the Word of God. You just need to better understand it. It's not what he's saying. So what time could he have thought, she thought, it was? She was thinking that the prophecies about Jesus, about this King who would come, this must be it. Well, why would she think that? Because many of them had to do with a wedding-style banquet. And she had just heard the report from the anxious disciples that were there, from the people that were around, from whoever invited them. See, you could say that Jesus was invited because Mary was a relative of somebody there. You could say that Jesus was invited because He was a personal friend. But why would the disciples have been invited? They were invited, I believe, because whoever was holding the wedding had heard some of this new teaching. They had heard some of the reports and they were interested in it. So now we're at a wedding ceremony. We're at an event where there's a banquet with wine and with a feast and a bride and a groom. And the mom noticed that something's not working right. And she turns to her son and he says, No, this is not my time. This is not all that unlike when the Pharisees ask uh, John the Baptist, Are you Elijah? And he says, No. And we know that he came in the spirit of Elijah. So we don't understand why did he say no. And the answer to that when we taught it was because their conception of Elijah was wrong. Jesus' time has come. Jesus is there to do powerful things. But what she expected Him to do, what did not get said was because of the setting, she thought something specific was going to happen. And He was letting her know, no, sweetheart, now's not that time. Well, what was it He thought that they thought? You remember in the Messianic expectations, some saw a fiery prophet? Some saw a king. Some saw um, the prophet. You know, and all of them were waiting for this messianic age. Well, let's look a little bit about what they studied. If they took the days of their week and did their weddings on a certain day because of one extra good in the first chapter of the Bible, doesn't it stand to reason that they took the rest of it pretty seriously too? Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. To get to Isaiah, you can turn to the middle of your Bible and then begin to hang a right. We're going to be in Isaiah 25 to start with. In the Thompson chain, this is page 782. Jesus has proclaimed Himself to Bethel. He didn't say Bethel, but He described Bethel and they understood what He meant. Uh, He's been proclaimed to be the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. So we have redemption working. We have the house of God working. We, we have these two concepts in the first chapter. We have John's announcement of Jesus. 
All of that in the first chapter. Then the second chapter, the first miracle that John chooses to record, the very first one of the signs of who Jesus was, is this event where they're at a wedding, a banquet. In Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6, On this mountain, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all the earth. Now we're going to turn to another one, but get what this says. This was promising a day in the future that the Jews understood to be initiated under the Messiah. That was their understanding. When the disgrace of the Jewish people, indeed the disgrace of the entire world, would be removed because the shroud of death would be removed. Now, everybody has just heard the guy that they were hoping would be Elijah and thought might be the Christ, John the Baptist, say, no, I'm not. But that guy is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the whole world. Then they've heard the reports that Jesus is claiming to be Bethel, the house of God, the gateway to heaven. Now they find themselves at a wedding, a banquet, where there are all kinds of people. He's in his uh, hometown area, and they think perhaps this guy is going to announce himself as the Messiah, provide the aged wine, the food, start a party that removes all the disgrace from the Jews, overthrowing the Romans. Their conception of what Messiah would do forced them into that thought, and Mary was thinking it might be this time. If it's still a little vague, turn to Isaiah 62. Now, I'm not telling you that Mary was convinced this was the time. Think of it this way. She had heard the prophecies over her little boy when he was born. She had seen that he was a remarkable child. She knew that something was different and now he's beginning his earthly ministry and she's hearing these reports and she's not sure what to think. They're trying to plug in the pieces. If you want to have some sympathy for this thought, those of us that have uh, studied end times, every time there's an earthquake, there's some guy writing a book saying we're in the end times. Why? Because he saw an earthquake and the end times mentioned an earthquake in Matthew 24. Every time there's some mention of a United Nations or a one world government, everybody says, hey, we're in the end times. The Antichrist is probably walking the earth. And they interpret Scripture based on the newspaper headlines. That's the day that we live in. Now roll the calendar back. Get in the first century. And if you had been waiting, I mean, if the focal point was waiting for somebody to come, remove death from everybody, remove the disgrace, wipe away the tears, and it was going to be initiated at a banquet with fine meats and aged wine... And now you've heard this guy might be the Messiah. You're thinking he might be the Messiah. He's already proclaimed that he's the Lamb of God come to take away everybody's sin. He's proclaimed that he's the very house of God, the uh, covenant with the land. He's proclaimed all of those things that Bethel meant. And remember, part of Bethel is on this mountain the Lord will provide. You know, I mean, that whole thought when he was the Lamb of God, rather, on this mountain the Lord will provide. Now you're at that wedding. She says, they're out of wine. Is it time yet? You're going to do it? Is this when you're going to reveal your... Is this, is this it? And he says, dear woman, why are you trying to direct my life? You know, that's literally what he's saying. You don't choose for me. He said, my time has not yet come. That didn't mean at all that he was not going to do a miracle. It didn't mean at all that he wasn't uh, on track with his father to reveal himself, to do all kinds of things. It meant that the time she was thinking of as his time the initiation of this messianic age and the removal of death and the disgrace of the people, it was not that time. Listen to Isaiah 62. This is page 828. For Zion's sake, and those of you that don't know, Zion means the mountain of the Lord's brightness, but it also has, it's symbolic totally of Jerusalem. They're interchangeable and sometimes of all of Israel. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. 
till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This is a prophecy to the nation of Israel. They're waiting for this to happen. No longer will they call you deserted or your name or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hezbah, which means my delight is in her. I'm going to read these as what they mean. You will be called my delight is in her, and you will be called married to the Lord, married to your land. As a young man marries a maiden, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give Him no rest till He establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by His mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food to your enemies and never again will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and the praise of the Lord and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. I'm going to read the rest of this in a minute. Do you hear some familiar words here? Pass through, pass through, build up, build up, prepare, prepare. Who just got through saying that and doing that? John the Baptist. He'd come to make a level way for the Lord. And he said that's who he was. I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. They saw that. They heard that. That was the report that was beginning to circulate. Now, this hope of the Jewish people that they had read was that like a blazing torch, they would be vindicated. Their God would come and it would be a setting where their very builder would marry them. They would no longer be considered deserted, but God's delight would be shown to be in them. And then the Lord had made, has made a proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your Savior comes. See, His reward is with Him and His recompense accompanies Him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after the city no longer deserted. She was hoping... All Israel was hoping this is the day when our disgrace goes away. This is the day when our Savior, our, get this, Redeemer comes. Now what had He just been called? The Lamb of God. Lamb was redemption. Now those that are hearing this CD for the first time, that won't make as much sense because they didn't hear the other messages. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a methodology that goes way beyond a human being's ability to orchestrate in the book of John. The Holy Spirit put this together, precept building on precept, so that we would understand what was happening. So she finds herself at this wedding and she's hoping that it's the day. Have you ever wondered, incidentally, when you're reading through the book of John or some other book, how do they see Him on a Sunday and say, Hosanna, Lord save us, and then, at the very least, the leaders on a Wednesday cry out, kill him, let his blood be on uh, our heads and the heads of our children. How does that happen? They were all hoping for the Isaiah 62 style coming, a blazing torch, removing the disgrace, putting all the enemies under the feet, the whole world seeing God's delight is in Israel and in no other. And they were beginning to realize that's not what was going to happen. See, Mary's a little disappointed here. You know, my time's not yet come. Every time you see a question along these lines, it's funny. She wants him to do something now. He says, my time's not yet come. Later, the apostles, after seeing the death and the resurrection, the first question they're asking Jesus is, at that time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking, is that when we will see what we've been waiting for at your hand? They said, those times are not for you to know. See, the expectation had been built and it had been there for thousands of years. So at every little turn, they were hoping it could be it. Just like all our modern prophecy writers, every time there's talk of war in the Middle East, they run to the book of Daniel and they say, see, we're in those days. Every time 
that uh, there's an earthquake, a tornado, a tidal wave, global warming, whatever it is. They try to say, oh, it's in... I remember even hearing something as stupid as because a man walked on the moon, they said that constituted the, the prophetic fulfillment of there's blood on the moon. <laughs> in other words, you'll look at the moon and it'll be blood red. Now, I don't see that at all. I think it's ridiculous. But people are so eager to see the prophecy fulfilled that they try to interpret it in everything. And that's what I believe was happening at Cana. Now, can I prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt? No, not at all. You, let, you see how it fits with your spirit. But let's get to what John is actually trying to teach. That explains why Mary said what she said. Let's get to what John is actually trying to convey. See, when we don't engage the text, though, when we just read this and we think about it in terms of Jesus in a three-piece suit and the apostles driving Chevrolets and meeting in churches with steeples, when we think about it in our terms, you can't get close to understanding that. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that this requires research and that it requires intellect. God reveals this stuff to anybody who wants it. You don't have to... When, there's a danger in me telling you these kind of things that it somehow makes my interpretation esoteric and only I can get it. Not at all. What I'm trying to teach is that their very culture, their everyday life made it more understandable. And that the only reason it's difficult for us at all is we have so far removed ourselves from the original culture it set in. This was not supposed to be hard. None of it was supposed to be confusing. Jesus went out of His way to make this understandable. And our theologians have gone out of their way to make it incomprehensible unless you subscribe to them. <laughs> That's man's natural tendency, I think. Woman, why do you involve me? Or dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever He tells you. you know, I love this. She, she says, Hey, they're out of wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time's not yet come. That's not when you think it is. You can see anybody that has a mother-in-law could see this. Well, do whatever he tells you then. You know? She's uh, probably just a little bit. This was a mild rebuke, okay? I'm not suggesting Jesus put her in her place. But at the very least, this is a mild rebuke. He's pulled back the rein, sweetheart, you're not running my life. The Father's running my life. This happens several times in the Scripture. There's one time she sets out thinking he's out of his mind. There's another time, and he, the same kind of mild rebuke. He said, who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? I'm with the people that do the will of God. And he left his mom sitting outside the house. Another time his brothers come and say, hey, hey, Jesus, you did this all wrong, man. You want to be a public figure, you need to go present yourself at the feast. He said, for you, any time is right, because the world loves you. And then he went anyway. But he didn't go at their urging. <laughs> he didn't go when they said go. He went out of his way to show he was going not because they said. His family tried to control him no different than any natural family tries to control each other. I have a will for my children that will be hard for me to let go. I'm trying, but it will be hard for me to let go. She wanted something to happen. She was eagerly hoping it would happen. He set her in her place and then turns to the servants and gives up and says, hey, look, do whatever he tells you. I taught this in another place at another time and they were insistent that Jesus was obedient to Mary in performing this miracle. That He did this at her request. And their whole idea here is that this is why it's okay to, inter to pray to Mary for intercession because she gets Jesus to do things for you. That idea is as removed from the Scripture and as absent in the Scripture as anything that you can imagine. That is literally the opposite of what just happened here. Do whatever He tells you. Now, here's the point. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then He told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water they had that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then they called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. 
I have a couple thoughts on that that I want to share as we get into this. First off, what was the normal practice? You give the good wine first, then as everybody has had too much wine, then you bring out the, the cheaper wine. For those people that because they have a doctrinal statement that says wine in the Bible is grape juice, they have to manipulate this Scripture to say something that it doesn't say. They have to try to twist this to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. What is the most obvious rendering in the whole world of this? That too much wine means you're getting drunk. You can't have too much grape juice and so you bring out other grape juice. It it does not make sense that way. Now, if that doesn't fit... You know, if you live in a day when prohibition is the order of the day, men have a tendency to adapt their doctrine to the social uh, patterns. We cannot do that because this was written in a culture that was intended to display the Word of God to the world. It's the right culture to do so. Not the Americans, not the Japanese, not any other. It is wrong for us to Americanize the Gospel. I don't like the fact that people get drunk any more than anybody else likes it. I have very much learned to appreciate a glass of wine. There are people that would fall out of their chair and have a heart attack at the thought that a man of God would do that. Jesus' very first miracle involved making an intoxicating beverage. They had already had a bunch of wine, drank it all. This is the point where you usually bring out the ripple, the cheap stuff, because they're not going to know the difference anyway. They've already had a bunch to drink. And Jesus brought out the very best wine. And there are volumes of books written by people that graduated from Dallas Theological to tell you that this best wine is grape juice. That makes no sense in the context of the Scripture. That being laid aside... What are we talking about? What is the message? Why would this be the first of the signs? What is God trying to portray to us? Are we really just supposed to be getting that this is after Bethany and she thought it was the wedding feast of the Lamb that later Matthew 22 would talk about or Revelation 19 describes happening? Is that really what we're supposed to get? Well, that's part of it. It's what they thought. But what, what impacts your life about this? Well, I'll tell you. Six is the day that man was created. Six is a number that is synonymous with man in the Bible. Always man was on the sixth day. Six is the number of man and six is the number of sin. The ultimate expression of man's sin towards God is said as 666, the number of an antichrist. All that aside, there are six stone water jars. And Jesus is in a place where it's not the time Mary thought it was, but He is going to do something special. He's going to use this opportunity to proclaim a message. And he takes six stone water jars. And what are they for? What does John include for us that are not Jews? They're the kind that are for ceremonial washings. What is that? It's baptism. It's not just baptism like... Now, when I say baptism, us Gentile Christians, what do you think? Think somebody pinching your nose and dunking you in water, right? That's not how the Jews baptized. Okay? This is all the kinds of cleansing... The Pharisees washed their hands and their feet before sacrifices. They washed everything. Everything in the temple period was cleansed by water and cleansed by blood. And Hebrews makes that clear and so does the whole Old Testament. These are the jars that held that kind of water. Okay? So it's water for purification. We have six ordinary stone water jars, it says. The kind used by Jews in ceremonial washings. Stone because it was less likely because... uh, It was less likely to be permeable by contaminants. A stone jar. I mean, this is not a day when you have Pyrex. Okay? Clean water. This whole idea of what we're fixing to get at, these jars, let's see what it says here. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, that's been converted for us. In uh, the Greek, it's uh, Mitri's. About 75 to 115 liters. Well, that still makes no sense to me because I don't live in a liters kind of world. So, converting it back to gallons, same thing. We know that there's six ordinary stone water jars, but the kind used for ceremonial washing. And then he tells you how much water they hold. You know how much 20 to 30 gallons of water weighs? Just a guess, just for fun. 
she's close, 150 on the light end, that, that would be the 20, to 230 pounds. Incidentally, almost every man that, that uh, walks the earth today, I mean, there are exceptions on both ends, but the average man is between 150 and 230 pounds, are they not? In, in America, at one time anyway, the last time I saw it published, it's probably much bigger than that now, the average American male was 5'9 and a half and 185 pounds. Now, men have been getting bigger through the years, uh, according to science, but at this time, could we not say that most people are between 150 and 230 pounds? So we have six, the number of man. We have stone water jars. These are symbolic of something being pure, kept pure, filled with ordinary water that are the size and weight of, of a man. And Jesus takes ordinary water in them, but at the Master's Word, at His Word, He does something extraordinary with them. He fills them with wine, and not just any wine, the best wine, the new wine, the, the best wine to the point where the Master of the banquet is surprised. See, what Jesus, in, from the very beginning, John the Baptist sets this up as, hey, I baptize you with water, but He's somebody who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here we have, right away, they're filled with ordinary water for purification, baptism in water. But Jesus filled them with something richer, something fuller, something that throughout the Bible to every Jew at all times and to every Christian today is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The best wine. There nearby stood six water jars the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then He told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Think about the master here for a minute. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Not great juice. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said to everyone, and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Hebrews, the seventh chapter, makes this point. We have a new and better covenant, he says. If the old had been sufficient, there would not have been the need for a new. Jeremiah 33 spoke of a day when there would be a new covenant. In addition to this being speaking of the baptism in the Holy Ghost, in addition to this speaking of taking something ordinary and doing something extraordinary with it, it spoke of the first being good, being pure, symbolic of purity. But what was coming as better than that. Judaism is awesome. The roots are awesome. It's pure. And it was given to man for that purpose. But what Judaism would become, or what would become Judaism, real Judaism, this Spirit-filled way would be even better. But it's something that would escape the notice of the people, how it happens. And you see that in the time period. Now, these are shadows and types. I'm just telling you what I believe a spiritual message is. If you don't get anything else out of this, what I want you to get out of this is God takes the everyday, ordinary things like us, and He does extraordinary things with them. He didn't go get golden jars for His first miracle. Now, there is going to be a golden jar later. Anybody have any idea where it is? It's in John 7. They're celebrating a feast and they're taking a golden jar of water and pouring it out, symbolizing the well of salvation. And they're singing the psalms. And at that point, Jesus stands up, it's John 7.37, and He says, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of Me. And John writes in there, By this, He meant the Holy Spirit who had not yet been poured out on any of them. See, this is consistent throughout John. Jesus is portrayed as the bringer of life, the revealer of the Father and the baptizer in the Holy Spirit from the beginning. But why didn't you grow up here in this? Because the churches we've all been a part of were more interested in the business of church than the truth of the Scripture. Because this can make people uncomfortable. Something spiritual? You mean we have to do something? Something's going to happen? It's not all on the inside? Verse 11, This is the first of His miraculous signs 
Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed His glory and His disciples put their faith in Him. Get this, they'd been following, listening to His teaching. They had called Him beautiful things. But it was when they saw this that they began to trust in Him. Prior to that, they were kind of enamored with Him. Prior to that, they thought He was a pretty cool guy and they wanted to hear more of what He had to say. But at this point, they began to put their trust in Him. Notice, Jesus didn't go touch these jars. Jesus didn't run over and put His hands in them. He didn't do anything that could cause there to be any confusion about, did He drop something in the water? He went out of His way for this to be a miracle that nobody could deny. He never got the water jars. He simply spoke the Word. You know what? The miracles that happen in people's lives, ordinary people, the stone water jars that are in here, do not come with a visible representation of an angel touching you for everybody to see. They come when you hear the Word of God and something inside of you because you have been baptized in spirit, I mean, because there's something in you that wants to be pure, causes a change. And all of a sudden, what was ordinary becomes extraordinary. And it's better than anything the Master had ever seen before. This is why the Bible speaks of us as a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. speaks of us as the first fruits of creation and says the Father, the Master, delights in us. It's almost as if He's saying we're better than He expected us to be. This is a good thing. No wonder the devil's worked so hard to keep it away from people. This is the first of His miraculous signs. The first of His miraculous signs. What's a sign for? Why do you, when you get to the end of this road, there's an octagonal sign with red and white lettering on it. Why? It's to produce a reaction. This was not to make them believe. This was not to... Some would see this and think He was crazy. Others would see it and they would make a turn in the right direction. Miracles are signs that cause a reaction out of people. Have you ever noticed that miracles happen sometimes and nobody believes from it? They assume that it's some medical fluke. They assume that that happened for them but would never happen. They're just signs. And there are other signs mentioned in the Bible. Not all signs tell you good things are happening. You know, the Bible speaks of uh, an unbeliever walking in, seeing somebody speaking in other tongues and it being a sign. Yeah, it's a sign. It turns them one direction or another. It doesn't necessarily, not every sign produces a great reaction, but what did this sign do for his disciples at least? Caused them to put their trust in him. Now, it's amazing to me that they didn't before this, but they're no different than you and I. How many miraculous signs has God given you in your life? Some good, some bad. I mean, have you ever imagined the horrible things that happened to get your attention? There were signs. They got your attention though. And then the beautiful things that happen to get your attention. But all of it is gained is for this one purpose, to cause you to trust Him more. In your mind, when you're reading the Word, you're thinking about faith, read it how it says it, but in your mind, convert that word faith to trust. It'll mean more to you. That's probably a more accurate from an understanding point of what, what faith means. And know this, Everything that Jesus does is taking ordinary things and doing extraordinary things with them. And He starts His ministry that way. He didn't go get the biggest, the best, the finest. He took something ordinary and did something extraordinary with it. You could read this, uh, I tell you, in a whole other way you can go with this. And this is because the Scripture is many-faceted. I'm telling you one beautiful insight in it. Next year, if we teach it again, I'll probably have a totally different one. Not that contradict it, one that is just another facet of the same stone. Another way to go with this whole teaching, there were other stone jars mentioned in the Bible. Moses encountered some stone jars. At his word, in Egypt, every bit where there was water, whether it was in stone jars, wood, or in the Nile, turned to blood. It's Exodus 7. Moses came with the law, proclaimed the law, and it brought death. Death to everything. Stagnant. Convinced the world that they were guilty of sin. Jesus came with grace. He brings the Spirit that gives life. And it brought life everywhere. 
everywhere they go. And you can see, that, and you know what, Jews, they would be thinking about these things. You know, when they went home and they reflected on what happened, they would be thinking about that kind of stuff. But more than anything, what would be ringing in their mind is the idea that it was new wine and it was the best wine. And all the prophecies in Hosea, all the prophecies of the minor prophets, all the things in Isaiah would be coming to their mind and they would be wondering, is this the Messiah? Is He the one that's going to remove death? None of them went home and asked, do I need to believe on His name to go to heaven? Which is what the church is focused on. That was not their expectation and it's not what the Bible taught. So as we begin to get this right, these miracles will make more and more sense and you'll see why they were done. And it, if you didn't know that about their expectation about Isaiah, uh, the, the feast and the aged wine and all, what she says to him doesn't seem to make sense. And you don't know why he responds to her the way that he does. My time hasn't come. You don't know what time he's talking about. But as you put it in its context, it makes perfect sense. And it's not hard. It's not tricky. He's not trying to, to trick you. And the whole thrust of this first message is he takes the ordinary and does the extraordinary. The next thing that we're going to cover, and we're not doing it tonight, because we're at 50-something minutes here, is Jesus clearing the temple. Another debate in the Scripture. We make these things so hard and it's not... You know, everybody says, well, John records a clearing of the temple at this point in John. All the other books record it at the end. And, you know, what, what's the problem with this? Are we talking about two different events? Or is it the same event? There's a very clear answer, and it's clearly written in the Word, but Scripture has to be interpreted in light of other Scripture. And you know what window, when our church will really begin to see this? As more and more Jews who have been practicing Jews get born again. The more that happens, the more their culture will be expressed and we Gentiles who have not understood the culture will be looking at it going, oh, wow, the Jews do that? You mean they visit a house twice to examine it and they only tear it down if they've been there twice after a long period of time and they're still molding it? And those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, that's the key to the next, what we're going into. I'm making it our goal and our passion to not just understand the Word, but understand its context. And you know what? It'll get richer and richer and more and more full. And you'll understand it. But if you didn't come away with anything else, in your everyday life, every ordinary circumstance, you need to expect God to do extraordinary things. Quit telling God that you're just a stone water jar. What can you do? I only have water here. They need wine. What can I do? God's later going to take fish and loaves and feed more, have more left over when he's, when he's done than when he started. He does these kind of things to show us he's not limited by your resources. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that I don't speak well or that I sing off key or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. God takes ordinary things and does extraordinary with it. Yeah. Take that to your workplace tomorrow and I promise you'll have a better day at work. Yeah. I mean, I promise that. <laughs> Take it into your next trial and I promise it will make your trial easier. Y'all stand up and let's pray. Incidentally, on this wedding feast idea, if you want to see other times that they talked about the same style wedding feast, Matthew 22 is a great place to look. If you want to see the fulfillment of the wedding feast Scripture spoken about because it's not occurred yet, you can read Revelation 19. Uh, Sometimes I don't go the whole way to prove these points as we're teaching, and I know that because I'm not speaking to a bunch of skeptics that I have to prove anything to. If it agrees with you, read it, study it. If not... Come back and show me. That, that's a great way for us all to learn. All right, y'all ready to pray? Mm-hmm.